Rosemary Furtaw is the Director of Library Archives for the Walker Art Center in Minneapolis, and there is currently an exhibition on at the Walker entitled Text Messages, and you are the curator of that. Yes, along with uh, the Prints and Drawings curator, Siri Engberg. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. Artist books? Yes, artists who've made books, who've tackled the book. They've used it as what? In some cases, as part of their art-making process. In other cases, they've taken a text or a book that they might be familiar with, and they've tried to reinterpret it according to their lights. And many artists up in the exhibition have made books alongside of sculpture, painting, their art-making activity included the making of books. There's actually interpreting a text with their art, so be it painting or sculpting. So there's the text that is interpreted, and then there's the form of the book that they sort of riff off in different ways. Yes, yes. And use... Push to the limits. So those, you'd say, are the two defining approaches. Well, in this exhibition. I suppose it's larger than that. How much larger? Tiny bit larger. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the history of the illustrated book is a long one. Then there are some artists. They are the author. Or they'll use the book and won't include any text, or there won't be any kind of way for a librarian to look at the book and think, hmm, I know how to catalog this. So it's, it's just a mystery, really, in some cases. Mm-hmm. I think librarians were mystified when they looked at Ed Rocher's books because a lot of them ended up in the science and technology section, 26 gasoline stations, along with other books on automobile maintenance and repair, you know. And so these were primarily photographs that he put yes, into Yes, yes. Every time he stopped for gas when he was making his way from Oklahoma City to the West Coast, Los Angeles, he he took a photograph of all the gas stations where he filled up, and that became 26 Gasoline Stations, his first book. So the book was uh, seen as just a form of presenting his... His photography, in a way. Right. Mm -hmm. And so he's uh, one of the, the big names in artist books. Yes, yes. Ed he pioneered. He pioneered it? Contemporary. Yes. Artist book. Edward Rocher. By contemporary, what we mean is, as you said, pushing the, the boundaries, whereas prior to that, you saw illustration and text together in a sort of a mm-hmm. standard mm-hmm. binding. But in the 60s, they started experimenting with the form. Yes. So he put his photographs in accordion format. Yes, although there's only one that has that particular format, and that's uh, every building on the Sunset Strip. So he photographed at every intersection and cross street. One huge, long book. Just like the boulevard. Yes. So you could walk along it. Just recently he re-photographed it. But this time it was a much more sophisticated process, and he did it in color, and the book is a huge coffee table-sized book not the modest effort that he did Uh early on. And that was back in the 60s? Yes. What was his name again? Edward Rouchet. 
And where was he from? He was born in Omaha. Still alive, maybe known best for his paintings. Uh, lives in California, Los Angeles area. Has a studio in Venice, I think. Venice Beach. Yeah. It's like Naples, Florida. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's um, easy street. There are several other artists that you highlight or feature within this uh, exhibit practice. You could give us their names and what kind of innovations they introduced to the to the genre. One of the most prolific book artists is Dieter Roth, who made books throughout his career, including some early alphabet books, published a review called the Roth Review, lived in Iceland, did letterpress printing, and then made artist books in a series that he called his collected works. And then he found a publisher, Hans-Jörg Meyer, to republish these in large editions. Those were collected, and then he took a number of those and, and actually embellished them or made wonderful covers for some of them in small editions of 100, and then also did a lot of crazy experimentation so that his book works are all over the map. What kind of crazy experimentations? In his art making, he once filled some suitcases full of cheese and just let the cheese rot. His bookmaking materials, he used comic books and coloring books, and he punched holes in these a la Swiss cheese so that the contents are always sort of surprising. And then uh, the other artist that we show in depth is Richard Tuttle, who also made a lot of books throughout his career and is still making books. His books are perhaps more minimal and spare, but yet using papers and inexpensive objects. No fine paper necessarily, unless it was something for the Whitney Fellows, Friends of the Library group. But if a publisher got him, uh, but if he did it on his own, he usually used inexpensive materials. We have a book called Lonesome Cowboy Styrofoam that styrofoam and ribbon and weeds collected in the southwest and little envelopes full of debris. So anyway, Bridget Tuttle, another person. And then uh, the last person that we show in depth is Lawrence Weiner, who um, has a lot of minimal books using language. And his books are about uh, actions or his art-making process. Very often his books are the remnant or the um, remainder of an installation or something he's done in a gallery space. Depicting how you went about making works of art. Yes. For instance? I wrote a little piece on Lawrence Wiener for our permanent collection catalog handbook. I think I quote from the first book Lawrence Wiener did called Statements. So in Statements, he describes 24 works the readers can construct Using few words and no illustrations, the artist provides general directions for manipulating a group of very pedestrian materials, plywood, masonite, a dye marker, plastic sheeting, wooden stakes, steel, nails, and twine. So this is what he instructs. One sheet of plywood secured to the floor or wall. This is another statement. One standard dye marker thrown into the sea. These are all instructions for making art, a la Lawrence Wiener. 
you too could be an artist for $1.95 if you bought his first book, Statements. He sets up a construct and, and then follows it through with a stencil on a wall. Or He does do public art, so it's always in a... Well, if you couldn't consider some gallery spaces, public spaces, but he will also do it on a wall or... I mean, it's on the outside of, of the Walker building so that we have this... This is his bits and pieces put together to present a semblance of a whole. That's on the outside of the uh, Walker building, is it? Yeah. So in a way, this is sort of uh, what the Walker is all about. Bits and pieces. Okay, so what is the whole then? The collection of the museum, I suppose. A semblance of a whole. It may never really be whole. <laughs> to present some sort of understanding of... What contemporary art can be. How it can challenge us. How well, it can mirror up to experience. It's interesting that that a, a book artist would play such a central role in uh, the Walker Art Center experience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but again, I guess I'm trying. Like for example, he's just simply putting his philosophy of art in a book. Yes. How does that make it a book uh, art? Well, all of his books look alike. They all have this bent toward language, which... Which all books do. In his case, I mean, the language is parsed so that he's setting up a series of notions for art making. But, I mean, this is one example of public art. Yeah. He, he's done a lot of public but, art. But, I mean, that, those are just words on a wall. Okay, that provides a philosophy, but it, that doesn't, to me... But isn't it different than graffiti? Art. Well, I'd probably put graffiti closer to art than that. I think this is very typical of Lawrence Wiener, though. Maybe I've looked at too much Lawrence Wiener to see it any other way. I mean, he's, he's basically just put words on the side of a building there. But that's classified as, as a work of art. Yes, yes. Okay. Which gets us to our other point of, you know, well, if something is a work of art... It may not be a work of art outside the institution. Outside the confines. But within, it is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I think if an artist designates it. <laughs> See how I bought into it? <laughs> Which is, again, sort of very Andy Warhol-ish. If an artist makes it, it's art. I'm speaking to Rosemary Furtock, who is the director of the library archives at the Walker Art Center in Minneapolis. I love books. A lot of our listeners love books, but we love them for the content, and we love them for the, for the binding and the, the craft, the care that's, that's taken with the typesetting and the way that it's laid out and just the object itself. Mm -hmm. But when it goes beyond that, it becomes a work of art, just because this artist has burnt the edges and stuck it up on the piece of oh. something in an interesting shape or form or pattern. I'm a book collector. Book art that doesn't necessarily, I don't, I mean, I love it, but it doesn't appeal to me in the same way that collecting a beautifully bound 18th century first edition might. Well, here's the thing. It seemed to me that if a artist had a work in our permanent collection and that artist also made books we 
the library should collect those books. So it was dictated. I mean, in my mind, I thought, well, we've got Sigmar Polka's painting. Why shouldn't we try to collect some of his books? So you're like a completionist. Because that will give a more complete picture of who this artist is. And also, uh, it seemed to me like some books in small-scale multiples were being ignored. I mean, no one else was collecting them in the museum, and it just seemed like I should do it. <laughs> it makes sense, of course, yeah, but it's, it's sort of, uh, it's, uh, you're pushing the boundaries of a librarian. Yes, I know. Some librarians really don't care anything about this. I think it's only lately there's been more of a dawning on the part of librarians to uh, go after this kind of material. But I can remember being in Cleveland at a librarian's conference, and the only other person who was willing to go out to look at a book exhibition with me was Christina Wasserman, who's the head of, um, she used to be the librarian at the National Museum for Women in the Arts, but now she's become a curator of their book collection, and they are really collecting a lot of artist books made by women. So now she, she does nothing but sort of stage shows and talk about her collection. But I think librarians really ignored this, yeah. but didn't really have the sympathy for it. That describes, I think, the outlook of a typical uh, bibliophile or a book collector. There's a love of, of books, but I don't know that that extends outward to, an, uh, to a work of art that may have nothing to do with the text or with the contents of that book. And it's not even presenting content in many cases, this, these oh, right, book artists. Right. But th there's obviously a strong connection, which is appealing too. I mean, for me, the w books that I thought were most appealing and exciting were, for example, that uh, Tristram Shandy. It's John Baltasari. That California artist, and he'd taken B movies and the stills, yes, and superimposed these geometric dots, colored dots, into the but uses text. the text uh, exactly the as book. a kind of caption. Yeah, which is really yeah. it was fa it was fascinating, and uh, but the text was there. Yes, yes. Uh, I would suggest that many librarians would uh, would would use that as their sort of delineator. If it's if the text if the, if an author's text is present, then it's valid for me. But if it's not, then it's over in the art curators. Valley mm -hmm. way. What pushed you to, to to do this? Well, I saw it as a neglected area. I also um, saw that I was part of a community where a lot of people were making these things and they were bringing them to me, showing them to me. I mean, I knew that someone like Saul LeWitt had done a lot of artist books, and then he found himself on the board at Printed Matter Bookstore in New York, which is an outlet for these inexpensive artist books, and so he gave the Walker $500 to spend, provided it match his 500 So we were allowed to buy, or we were given the permission to buy a thousand dollars worth of books. So there were things along the way that sort of edged me on. That was in the 80s, 86. There was also a, a dynamic intern who decided to do 
an exhibition on her own during her year at the Walker in visual arts, and she proposed taking a permanent collection work and then uh, putting it with, pairing it with a book by the same artist. And so when she uh, talked about this exhibition, she was going to call it author slash artist, or artist slash author. So when she talked about this in the um, uh, in the meeting with her fellow curators, they said, well, where are you getting your loans for these books? And she said, well, I'm getting them from the library. And they went, really? Uh, see, they didn't know that these were down here, or, or the extent to which. And, but they uh, were down here because they... they I had collected them, yeah. And, and she had sort of done some exploring on her own in the library and found a lot of these. And so she felt, you know, this was something that could be done. Yeah. And then later, we had a director who um, really didn't know there was anything down here like this, but she began to meet when we would have these little gatherings for local artists. They would come up and shake her hand, and, and she'd say, now, what work is it of yours that we acquired? And they'd say, well, uh, this book was purchased by the library. And it was sort of a slow dawning again, and then she began uh, to come down with visitors, and then she'd start pointing these things out, or, or they'd notice things, some of the strange things that are on the counter, and they'd comment. And so she began to refer to it as the stealth collection. <laughs> that is uh, something that sort of formed mm-hmm. without a lot of people knowing it. But I think they were very glad it was here. Yeah. And uh, so when the museum opened in uh, the edition in 2005, the chief curator, Richard Flood, brought down Ellsworth Kelly, the artist, and he said to me, now, do you have my book? So Richard said, oh, she collects artist books, and Kelly said, do you have my book? And I said, I don't think we do. Well, it happened to be like $4,000 artist book, and I was always siphoning off just a portion of my book budget to buy these artist books through the years. So anyway, he gave it to us. So that was sort of another. And then Richard Flood gave us that wonderful polka book that's in the exhibition. So now when curators work with artists who've made these books, they sometimes receive these books gratis and they give them to the library. I, I think they feel, yeah, this should be going on, and we're glad she did it. Just in closing, it sounds to me like this could be a really interesting, possibly affordable avenue for collecting Oh yes, uh, among existing book collectors. Perhaps you could speak to how the uh, prospective artist book collector might uh, proceed. Well, I think you'd have to spend some time in a place like Printed Matter or in Canada, Art Metropole, and you'd really have to... Uh, These are bookstores, then, that yes, specialize? Yes, that, that deal in artist books and small-scale sculptures called multiples. And I wonder if you could... You know, what struck me, though, looking through the exhibition, was that I bet you there's a lot of used bookstores that have these books without even knowing what they are. Yeah. They may just place them in the art section, the, the art book section, without really knowing that these are actually classified as I think they know art. more now, okay. but, but oh yes, without a computer, if you find a bookstore with... I mean, someone found a copy of the um, Andy Warhol Moderna Mosite catalog, which is just 
illustrations. They found that locally for very, very little, which, uh, you know. But these aren't quite catalogs. They're necessarily. No, no, no. It was made, um, it's totally without text. There's no checklist. It's not really a traditional catalog. Okay. But, but I found the, um, Dieter wrote volume 40 of the collected works with the speedy drawing in it at a local bookstore. Did you? About 15 years ago, yeah. And you didn't pay much for it? Well, I paid $190, but I think that was you knew what very it was. little compared to what it might be worth. Because each of those uh, speedy drawings are unique. Yeah, I, I think it's a great thing to do, to scour bookstores. What you need to know, though, is who the top uh, names are. Uh, yeah, so maybe yeah, that's the thing about buying a books made today. You don't really know who's going to surface later yeah. as a name. But the existing, that's what we could do is uh, we've, we've identified four of the big names. Yeah, yeah. Um, but what, we, what I could do is uh, get a list of maybe 10 or 15 names that, uh, that I could post uh-huh. Uh, on the site just to, just to get people started. That, does that work for you? Yeah. Okay. I don't know if there are really ten. That many? In the world of illustrated books there are, but um, of these quirky books maybe without text or books with a minimal text made by artists who've got reputations in other areas of art besides books, well, there might be ten, yeah. Okay. Well, let's work on putting a list together of ten. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, and thanks very much for your time. Oh, you're welcome. Is there anything else that you'd like to say about the, uh, Gosh. the, the genre? Well, I think it's important. That's all. And do you think that the field is going to grow? I mean, do you think there's there's... Oh, yes. Increasing interest yes. in, in it among among librarians or yes. among curators. Well, uh, the VNA had a, a show called Blood on Paper, and I guess there's a very impressive catalog for that, and I'd like to see it. and And there were other book shows in Europe this year, and the LA County Museum did a book show this fall. So I think, yeah, I think there's momentum building for this kind of thing, more and more exhibitions. Certainly it was something the Walker wanted to do. Well, they're lucky to have you doing what you were doing over the years to pull together such a great collection. Someone once asked me if I had um, these kinds of things at my house. And I said, no, I'd put all my energy into collecting them for the Walker. And they said, well, no wonder the Walker has never gotten rid of you. <laughs> You're a, a value generator. <laughs> Well, thanks very much for your time. Uh, you're welcome. Mm -hmm. They used to think of me as the institutional memory, but I think now I've, I've maybe become more than that. I'd say. <laughs> thanks for your time. You're welcome. Thank you.